Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, you are traveling. Well, I, I was traveling yesterday. I am no longer traveling today, even though like in my brain, I, I, I have no idea what time it is. Time is a construct, Kate, that, <laughs> and it's also a flat circle. Flat circles are constructs, right? I think that's how this works. Sure, that yeah. can be how this works. <laughs> um, I just, I, I'm camped out at a library in Wisconsin. Um, as I have been for for the last couple of weeks when we've been recording. Um, but this time I got to bring an eggnog latte in from the delightful independent cafe next door. So I feel like, I feel Ooh, like. They're, get, they're, they're getting used to you. They're letting you bring in hot drinks. I know. It's, I was like, I went, walked up to the desk. I was like, two questions. First of all, can I have this in here? Second of all, is there mm-hmm. a room I can record in? <laughs> like, just don't go. Is there a room I can talk really loudly in in a library, please? Please, please, and thank you. But it's a, it's a lovely thing, the public library system. Thank you, Mr. Benjamin Franklin, for your contributions to that. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people do not appreciate what they have in their local libraries. So, everybody, support your local libraries. Um, what TV news comes to mind this this week? I feel like uh, it's been you know because of you know, Thanksgiving holiday last week, and uh, I feel like there hasn't been a lot. Yeah, I, I don't think that there has been a lot. I think the only real uh, industry-related news is that uh, CBS, along with ABC, NBC, and Fox, all decided, yeah, we're not going to do executive sessions at the Tele- Television Critics Association winter session uh, this time around. So, uh, Mark Petowitz over at CW, you have fun entertaining the kids. Um, because like, (laughs) he's basically the only, um, executive panel, I think, aside from like a couple of the cables, cable channels that are doing executive sessions because the broadcast networks just went, we had a really bad fall and we don't want to talk to any journalists. Yes. Please don't make us explain ourselves. Um, there is that, uh, also they don't always go super well if people aren't prepared, so... Yeah, um, we did get a little bit more ca- of casting news this this week for Star Trek Discovery because of course previously we had talked about Michelle Yeoh. We found out that she's going to be the captain of the the Star Trek Discovery, the the, the ship itself. Um, and uh, we also heard uh, this week that Doug Jones has been cast, uh, which was very exciting. And Anthony Rapp, who people will of course know from the original Broadway cast of Rent, um, he's playing a nerd. Doug Jones is. I was so excited, and then I saw that he's playing an alien. And I was like. Well, okay, it's cool that there's this new alien species that they're going to have um, his character be. Um, and obviously, if people who don't know Doug Jones, um, he is a very, very tall, very thin man who has been like, – like he was in Pan's Labyrinth as Pan, the you know as the fawn and also as the eyes and the hands guy. He's been – he was one of the gentlemen for Buffy's uh, episode Hush. Like he's been in all of the things. He was in um, – Guillermo del Toro's, uh, uh, oh my goodness, what's the name of the movie, Noel? Well, he Guillermo del Toro also did Pan's Labyrinth, so I'm not quite sure which other movie you're oh, thinking no, of. Oh, no, yeah, no, the, 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 he was the guy in the fish tank. Oh, oh, you're thinking of Hellboy, Abe. Yeah, Abe Sapien, right? Yeah, yes, Abe Sapien. Yes, he was Abe yeah. Sapien. 
Yes. Um, so, so he's been in a lot of things. Uh, and I was so excited to see his face. Uh, he's a terrific <laughs> actor with his face, too. But you, you just never get to see it. And that I was very excited. We was on Flash last year because, again, I got to see his face. And then when I was at Comic-Con, I could walk by and go, oh, yes, this is Dick Jones. I'm not going to bother him. But that's so cool. Um, but, no, we won't be seeing his face, I don't think. Oh, well. But it is exciting that he's on the show. Do you have any thoughts on the casting? Like, then I don't see the casting of first the captain and then new alien species and white nerd. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm excited about uh, New Alien, and I mean, Doug Jones has basically been preparing his entire life to play a Star Trek alien, so that's really exciting. Um, Mm. I have no connection to rap as someone who has only kind of semi-listened to rent, so I'm kind (laughs) of like, okay, that seems cool. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm just excited that they're announcing casting is my entire excitement level is that, oh good, you guys are casting people. And you're casting people now that Brian Fuller has left. I don't want to draw a correlation between any of this, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any connection to Anthony Rapp from his role in the uh, uh, in the Psych musical? I barely remember the Psych musical. So. <laughs> we are. That's okay. We have very different backgrounds with these things. Of course, <laughs> I'm very excited about Anthony Rapp being in something. But we'll see. It'd be, you know, it, I, I just enjoy seeing all these very talented um, people that I appreciate from other mediums. I guess popping up. Um, but then that just makes me want to have them sing. So we're going to be talking at the towards the end of our week in TV about the big DC CW crossover. Um, but the, still, the big crossover in my heart will be the Flash and uh, Supergirl musical episode. So, yeah. Yeah, which is coming soon. Soon, soon, soon. soon. And now will be made even easier because of Cisco's <laughs> little deus ex machina doodad. <laughs> yes, which we'll talk about later. Um, but, yeah, who knows? Maybe Star Trek will find an excuse to, to have him sing. Probably not. That's not going to happen. Um, but, uh, but it is, like you said, it is neat to get started getting some casting news and I'm just going to try to not look too close at the timing of that. Uh, though you make an excellent point. Uh, we're gonna be talking lots of Star Trek this week in the podcast because joining us at the DVD shelf returning, I should say, is friend of the show, Caroline Siva from the AV club as well as other places. And we're talking about, oh God, we're talking about Star Trek enterprise, which means I'm going to have to listen to and subject our listeners to the theme song. I've got Uh, faith. No. Of the heart. No. Undo it. None of that. None of that, sir. Uh, that's coming at the end of the show. But it was, I feel like, like thinking back, I think I was, uh, I was might have been too harsh, but I wouldn't change anything that I said. <laughs> no, uh, we were, we were very, um, we, we, we made Caroline into the half-hearted defender of Enterprise, which I think is a position she wasn't exactly prepared to be in. <laughs> um, but it's a very good discussion, though, if you're a big fan of Enterprise. Um, maybe don't listen to this week's DVD shelf. And, just maybe um, steer, steer clear, yeah. Yeah, just um, spend 30 minutes doing something else. <laughs> yeah, watch, you could rewatch. You could rewatch some Enterprise. That yeah. might be your solution. Um, but but yeah, again, it's always a pleasure to talk with Caroline, and it is nice to have some sense of completion and closure to our Star Trek cycle of DVD shelves. Uh, so so that's coming at the end of the podcast. But first, here we're going to get into our week in TV. So we are going to take a break, listen to a little bit of music from Gilmore Girls, and we'll be back with our week in comedy and drama. 
was the original song featured in Gilmore Girls A Year in the Life. You know I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to use Sutton Foster and Christian Borrell in the the you know for our music this week. Um, we're going to be talking here in our weekend comedy and drama about Gilmore Girls A Year in the Life, uh, which is the new series of uh, four movies from Netflix. Uh, then we'll talk some Bob's Burgers, the last gingerbread house on the left. Kind of catch up on Bob's. It's been a while since we talked about it, but also specifically this holiday-themed episode. Then we'll talk about the mid-season finale of Jane the Virgin, Chapter 51, and we'll round out our weekend comedy drama with uh, Queen Sugar, which had its finale, Give Us This Day. Um, but we're going to keep things up with Gilmore Girls. I have not yet uh, dived in with Gilmore Girls because of the subject matter. It's a little close to home right now so i kept putting it off and putting it off and eventually I had to be like kate there's a reason that you don't want to watch this uh series of movies about a family a close-knit family dealing with the death of a paternal figure patriarchal figure um maybe don't subject yourself to that yet if you're not ready uh so, so i i have been in- enjoying the discussion around this and particularly those last five, four words and I have some thoughts about them without having seen this just based on what I know happens. Um, but that is, you know, sort of blasphemous and wrong. So I'm going to keep my thoughts on that related solely to the context of the actual show, you know, not these movies. Uh, so, so I'm going to pass it over to you here, Noel, and ask, uh, what did you think of A Year in the Life and those infamous last four words? Uh, so Year in the Life, I think, is perfectly okay um i had a really kind of a weird like experience in terms of like watching it insofar as i woke up on friday morning like any number of um people who were deeply deeply excited about this and didn't really leave the couch for way too long like i stopped after episode three to take a break um to get tacos and then i came back and watched episode four but that was like I watched episodes one, two, and three, like, back to back to back. I didn't take any time in between the episodes. I don't even think I ate breakfast. No, I think I ate breakfast. But um, it was a bowl of cereal, not Pop-Tarts. Anyway, um, so I was... But as I was watching it, I was just, like... It was it was comforting to be back in Gilmore Girls. It's a show that I've always um, enjoyed, for the most part. And so getting back into the rhythms of the show, getting back into Stars Hollow, getting back into the squabbles of taylor and kirk's random businesses including this time he started uber uh which is spelled uh, triple o b e r um but not u b e r because that's something totally not a thing that exists um 
And I was watching it. I was excited to see how they were going to handle uh, the death of Edward Herman and how that was going to factor into the show and just all sorts of things. So I was very excited to be back in the show. And as things kind of progressed, I kind of went, uh-huh, we're, we're, we're just doing ASP, by which I mean er, Amy um, Sherman Palladino, the creator of the show. We're just doing what she had in mind for season seven, aren't we? And it became increasingly clear that it's what we were doing. And with the addition of factoring in Edward Herman's death as a um, catalyst for some of the emotional estrangement and weirdness that was happening between uh, Lorelai, Rory, and um, Emily. And I just kept kind of not being okay with the fact that Palladino was basically relitigating season seven in a 10-year time skip. And that's where a lot of like the issues that were you probably saw online were coming up is that, and we might as well just circle to the last four words now, which is something that I think has been really well blown out of proportion that these were like four mythical words that were gonna lock the secrets of the universe. And uh, instead um, they um, were, mom, yeah, I'm pregnant. And we all, I kind of went, wait, what? Okay. And I like started thinking about it. And I was talking with two people as I was watching the entire series, um, one in Slack and the other on text messaging and like getting feedback and discussing the episodes as um, I was watching them. And I just, I kept, the more I thought about where, how this season was structured in terms of Rory very much being really bad at her job, um, like super bad at her job, um, despite having a couple of successes, she's just very, very bad at her job. And as a freelance journalist, apparently, I don't think she ever actually worked for the Obama, um, did the Obama campaign trail. Um, I think we were just pretending that didn't happen. And so it just, I kept being more and more frustrated by the fact that a lot of Rory's actions and her mentality with uh, this in year in the life is very much what you would describe to a 22 year old and not a 32 year old. And so the idea of her being pregnant at 32 is very different from her being pregnant at 22, which I think is the parallel Palladino wanted to draw. And it's very different thing when you're wanting to bookend the idea in the first episode of Luke telling Rory, you're gonna grow up to be just like your mom and Rory's saying giddily, too late, on the pilot episode and then ending, allegedly ending your series with her being exactly like her mom, but at the age of 32 instead of 22 is a very different kind of thing and she is different choices that she can make and so forth and so on and i'm not even sure if she'll make those kind of choices and it just feels like a very plot contrived way of forcing symmetry basically um in the so far as clearly we're setting up logan as a christopher-esque figure with jess um after staring longingly at at, at the window at rory um to be her luke and it's just, wow, we're really going to force this on her, aren't we? Okay, this is a choice that we're making that you made 10 years ago and decided not to change. 
And that's basically where I ended up with it, where I liked large portions of this, particularly the first two episodes. But those first two episodes were really heavy on Paris, and Paris is my spirit animal, and she makes everything better. And the sight of um, her kicking a door shut in very narrow heels and balancing on one foot is by far and away the best bit of physical comedy I think I've seen in years. Um, but I just kept going back to the last four words and going, this this would have been, I think, more powerful had you had a full season of shows to do as opposed to three 90-minute episodes and one almost two-hour episode um, to wrap up what you wanted to do. And then there are other like weird things in it that I feel like we can discuss maybe after you've had an opportunity to watch it and like want to circle back to it, namely the fact that the sh Emily now has an entire family of potentially indentured servants that don't speak English, but they don't necessarily speak any other language either. It's some sort of version of Spanish, but no one can quite decide what it is. And it's supposed to be funny, but it's just kind of weird that she has this whole family around her that work for her, but that she kind of treats like a family and it's all very weird. And yeah, so it's it, it was good to be back in Stars Hollow for a lot of the, like the crazy stuff, including the song that you played from the musical that is very funny, but also ends up going on too long. So the joke kind of runs out. But if you get Sutton Foster to come in, you're going to have her sing for 15 minutes and it's going to be great. And then you're going to have her chain smoke in front of Lauren Graham for two minutes. And it's going to be even better than all the singing because it was Lauren Graham and Sutton Foster talking to one another at 90 miles a minute. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I felt is that overall, I was very glad to have these four episodes, but then I just kept almost souring a little bit on like my reaction to them. And I'm, it's not something I feel like I can revisit in the same way I can revisit the show as a whole. Like I'm, I think I can watch like spring again, which is the second episode. And I think my favorite, but I don't feel like I can like. I don't think I want to watch like the last episode fall again anytime soon. Um, yeah, I just, I liked it. I was glad to have it back, like I said, but I'm not eager to go back through it, but I am so happy to have like a discussion around the show in like a social media framework, which is something I didn't have when I was watching the show originally. So that was a lot of fun as well and i've been talking for like 10 minutes now so i'm gonna stop <laughs> and um let you weigh in at least on your sense of the reaction that you read and your response to those four little words well i i have a few thoughts about the response yeah which has been it's been really um you know it's been really entertaining for me to watch some of the response to to gilmore girls and um and just to see who's responding to it more and who's responding to it less. And because I, I really, really liked Gilmore Girls. I loved Gilmore Girls when it was on um, and got sort of disenchanted with it over time because, uh, like I said, when we, you know, for the television DVD shelf about Gilmore Girls, that for me it was very much an experience of watch, you know, knowing someone when they're younger and seeing all this potential that they have for this amazing person they could become and then watching them grow up and realize they're growing up into somebody that you don't like, which is my experience with Rory, where I, I super identified with her in the, at, in the first season of like that, you know, who she was. I was super nerdy, always reading a book, um, you know, 
in all the you know advanced classes wanting to do all the nerd stuff that was me and um and so i really could connect with her and then i just watch her as she grows up and just becomes this really spoiled really uh pampered and just kind of a jerk person um over time when she's like dropping out of Yale so she can live in a houseboat you know and uh like all of these different things it's just like who your mom is still so amazing how did you happen um but just because someone has an amazing mom doesn't mean that the the kid's going to be amazing and you know so I, I, for me the experience of, of watching Gilmore Girls is very much that so when I'm seeing people respond with uh, oh Rory's terrible at her job and how is she flying all over the, the country to go visit people? And Amy Sherman Palladino's reasoning for that is, well, she's got a lot of points. Like, no, she's living off the largesse of her rich pa- her grandparents and her rich boyfriend, and she has no problem taking their money, whereas that was a thing that defined her mother as, was self-reliance. Rory has never been self-reliant, and she's, you know, she's trying to make it as a freelancer when that would the, the way that they depict, by all accounts, I would, I would appreciate your thoughts on this, uh, Noel, but the way they, they depict her working, it's like she could never sustain herself the way that she's working um, uh, in the show. She doesn't even seem to work. Like, she writes one article in this span that we see her in. She's she's going to, like, co-write, ghostwrite a book for um, Alex, Alex Kingston's character who shows up for um, two episodes. Um, but that falls through and then it's just like um you have and this is the this is one of the things like she ends up telling Jess that she does can't even buy underwear but again two episodes ago she was just jaunting around flying back and forth between the states and London and it's just like but but and I mean points no there's just too many trips back and forth for points well and then then all Um, your character's privilege and that's like and you know maybe she doesn't yeah. see it, but then have Jess would be the prime person to point that out. It's like if you can't afford underwear, why are you flying to London? Um, but they don't do that, and because there's just this giant blind spot about money, when it comes to Rory on the show and uh, and just her privilege. And there's a huge that extends to the racial and ethnic you know characters and stereotyping that happens on the show when you go back and you watch it's just an incredibly incredibly white show and when you have the only latino and latina characters being the housekeepers for for emily who she's constantly treating like crap and that's supposed to be funny that doesn't age well when you make a new season of it of the show and you know that's by all counts continued in this season it's still not funny and how has amy sherman palladino not like learned or changed or adapted or had emily learned or changed or adapt or at least had somebody you know counter counterpointed that with you know some other more interesting developed nuanced characters as opposed to a secretary who shows up so that she can get fired and that's one of the very few people of color in in this cast in the season um that's according to there's a tumblr that, that put out uh screenshots and of all the people of color in these four episodes and their name the character name and their job so there's like a very small handful um and so it's like the show's always been problematic in areas and so it's not surprising to me that then this um season would share the same strengths but also the same blind spots um as for those last four words i never bought into 
Rory as like over time I really got disenchanted with her so it's not a huge surprise to me that she is not actually achieving any of her life goals and she's just gonna quit this job that she said that she loved and wanted to do and had worked her entire life for to go work for a small town paper and move in with her mom and yeah unpaid to and and have a kid and that's supposed to be the happy ending because it's you know symmetry um that doesn't that isn't frustrating to me like it is to some others because i'm not surprised and i'm not disappointed i'm just like yep that figures so i think it just comes down to my not liking rory so that the that theory of 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 it doesn't bother me but the fact that um i because i've seen some people be really troubled by the fact that this was the end for the character when she was 22 that's the the idealized like the plan when she was 22 and having that still be the plan at 32 and having her not have actually achieved or done much in between those 10 years um i could see that being very frustrating for people but for me because i'm not that engaged with rory it didn't really I don't know. It didn't bother me as much uh, as someone who is the is the daughter of parents who had kids young, and the granddaughter of grandparents who had kids young. Um, the idea of Rory getting pregnant and having a kid at 22 isn't like the end of isn't that isn't like a shocking thing to me or like the end of her life or a horrible thing like i've seen some of the reaction being like that the people were horrified that that was the original plan um but um yeah i just you're absolutely right someone having kids at 22 and having kids at 32 should be they should be a very different person um and I'm not surprised that right that with what you're saying about it, it feeling like the show is kind of stymied. Now, did you feel that way with Lorelai as well as with Rory? Um, that was also just really weird in the sense that um, Lorelai and Luke's relationship hasn't seemed to progress in any real way. Like they're still, it's it's just they're living together at least finally in a really set way. Um, b- but in like emotionally, it never really felt like they had developed in any real way, uh, which I guess was fine for the most part because there's this sense that they're like forever couple type of thing. They're the show's OTP for want of a better um, explanation. So it was there's not like a huge emotional core there. It's more so Lorelai trying to come to grips with Emily once again, them being on the outs with one another after a debacle at uh, Richard's wake. Uh, and it results in a really great moment in which Lorelai comes to terms with it after attempting to do wild um, the book, the book specifically, not the movie, um, purists after all. Uh, even though I refuse to believe that Lorelai read the book. Um, so there's a really good moment that comes out of all of that where after that realization, she commits like to Luke there. She's just like, we're going to get married now. And it's just like, okay, great. And it's just their relationship just doesn't feel particularly dynamic in any real way. And I guess that's fine because the show, I think, especially within this year in life, is very Rory-driven, much more so in my brain, anyway, than it is Lorelai-driven, which could account for the larger sense of mixed feelings I have about it. Because, like you, when I rewatched 
Gilmore Girls after Netflix got it, I was very quickly of the opinion of, oh my God, Rory's the absolute worst. And the revival series just really kind of doubles down on that in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's that that's where I came out of this from was that it was very much less about Lorelai trying to grow and her growth is very limited in so far as she decides to do an annex to the dragonfly uh, in downtown stars hollow um and mainly an effort to keep michelle around who's looking to expand his like potential which is good for michelle because he's super competent and shouldn't have stayed at that inn as long as he did quite frankly um especially as the only probably gay black man and they do confirm he's gay in this um but it's just like ah okay so yeah it's just moralized arc for want of a better term is really something that could have been achieved in like two episodes but takes four really long episodes to do well like you say uh rory's kind of the worst but i also heartily agree that paris is the best so i'm still looking forward to watching this when i'm like emotionally (laughs) ready for it um and certainly it was fun to go and into the episodes to find the musical number because <laughs> I'm always going to love a Sutton Foster musical number. Uh, and, and again, while I can sound harsh about where I sort of am with the show at this point and with this world, I still I very much appreciate the joys of Gilmore Girls. I just think uh, I, I, it was surprising to me to see such, see how much everybody else in like the, the TV Twitter just was gushing over and so in love with the show still and and really excited for this uh series of movies because i i was very much the okay i mean that should be that'll be that should be good but i i didn't i didn't need them these these movies at all and so like i'm gonna look i'm going to watch them i'm sure i will enjoy many elements of them but um yeah it's just again it just feels very it, it, the, and a lot of the discussion around that I've seen, at least, and maybe this is just indicative, a, a critique of, of my bubble and, and the, the critics that I tend to go to. Just, it just It's such a white show, you know? It's so yes. white, and that's okay. But, you know, that's, you know, that's just a, that's fine. That's what this show is. But it's just, you know, there's, there, there, are, these, there are these huge blind spots that just bother me much more now than they did when I was in high school watching the show. So I think that's sure. the difference of where I'm at. But I look forward to chiming in with my thoughts when I do finally catch up with this one. Um, we'll see if I make the time for it before our year-end listening. But um, for now, let's move on to our next episode, and that is uh, Bob's Burgers, The Last Gingerbread House on the Left. Um, we, there was also a rather delightful Thanksgiving episode from Bob's Burgers last, the previous episode. Um, Noel, how was this one for you and how did it relate to their previous holiday episodes? A, a fairly high, like an excellent track record over there at Bob's for holiday episodes. Right. Super, super great track record. Uh, I can't really recall many of their Christmas episodes super well, um, which I think is more so just because I focus i feel like they really focus in on their thanksgiving episodes given the setting of the show is being in a restaurant and that thanksgiving is bob's single favorite holiday um 
I really enjoyed Last Gingerbread House on the left, um, in part because it married my favorite Thanksgiving episode, which is uh, when they have to go over and pretend to be Fish Odor's family for the sake of him seducing a former paramour. And so now we get another look into Fish Odor's life of he has this competitive gingerbread building contest that he always loses. So he wants Bob to participate. So Bob will lose and he will no longer have to wear the bedpan of loserdom. And, but then the entire thing's just this deranged type of family unit that Fish Odor's constructed for himself that involves building gingerbread houses and then shooting them up with antique handguns and also shotguns. And it's all very deeply, deeply rich people type of activities um, in the basement of his house. But it's very funny. And I always enjoy when Fish Odor shows up for these kind of things. And it still managed to get to the whole heart of the show of everyone's got a family. It's really nice that we all have a family, even if this is the family of rich guys who meet once a year to blow up gingerbread houses. But it's okay because at the end, Everyone got to cuddle with a polar bear cub. <laughs> um, I I really enjoyed the visual style of it. Yeah, and the 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 animation for this one. That's what I was most connected. I mean, it was a fun episode in the concept, and of course, like you said, his shoulder getting into these ridiculous situations is always a lot of fun. Kevin Klein has a blast with the role. Um, and and but but for me, like the like the visuals as they're you know like the 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 creepily lit space as Bob comes down and with the food that he thinks he's delivering and um and everything just the ambience of it the the atmosphere and the um the 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 shot choices and everything were were a lot of fun so I always appreciate when uh, an animated show goes for like breaks their style a little bit and goes for a more cinematic feel with one of their episodes so that was something that I particularly enjoyed about this episode no, that's a really good point. Um, the framing of the gingerbread building was really different in that we were never really given like a eye level view when people were talking from their particular station. It was always like a table level view. Um, so I guess like the best way to describe it, if you're familiar with like um, Ozu films in that they're always kind of like in a seated, the camera's always in like a seated position. It's very similar to that. They went for a very kind of different aesthetic with this and it paid off really well in that we got to see these guys in a very different sort of way than we, I think any other animated show would probably have just done a very kind of standard shot reverse shot waist level or eye level higher and then they just went kind of a waist level with this and it worked really really well yeah and plus i'm always gonna enjoy a subplot about caroling i mean <laughs> i i would love to go caroling but my family when i was like hey let's sing some christmas carols i was like no <laughs> it's cold outside and it's warm inside and we don't want to sing so i appreciate i appreciated the 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 enthusiasm for that as the the subplot or i guess maybe also co-a plot but it was fun bob's knows how to do holiday specials and, and it it just always you know amazes me when they keep coming up with new and better ideas uh not always better but still like the fact that they're still keeping that fresh um, in season seven is very, very impressive. It is. It's super, super impressive. Well, next up is another, like, not a holiday tinge one, but of course the mid-season finale. And that's Jane the Virgin, chapter 51. And uh, we had a, a letter that will change everything, but it was not really. Um, this was an underwhelming uh, mid-season finale. I think in pretty much every 
way. I liked some of the conversations we got here with Jane and Michael and, and Raph about faith and about how they're going to raise Mateo. Like, those, those real issues are always much more interesting to me than the contrived ones the show comes up with. But even, like, even for the show, like, as I, I enjoyed the episode as I was watching it, but thinking back on it, it's just like, this is, this is not a good episode. It's really a very weak episode to end the show on. Um, at least for not like end end the show on, but end the um, end to go into a break on. It's not the best choice to go on. Like you, I really liked um, some of their discussions about raising Mateo in the church and how that was going to work. Um, and whether or not it was going to work. Um, I thought that was really um, interesting and a nice return to refocusing the show on Jane's faith a little bit, which I feel like has, hasn't gone away, but it's, it feels a little less present um, this season, which is fine. Um, but I agree that the rest of the episode is kind of low key in its stakes, basically, is, which is a very weird thing to be in. Um, that being said, and we can talk about the letter in a little bit, but the one thing I do want to mention that I really loved was all the Hitchcock stuff. Um, I just thought it was a really well executed, um, like Brett Dyer's, um, Jimmy Stewart impression is just fantastic. Um, in it's kind of semi horribleness, but he really commits to making sure that it works. <laughs> and I have to give props for that because if you're going to do a Jimmy Stewart impression, you either need to be really good or really bad and commit to it. Is the is, There's basically no in-between when doing a Jimmy Stewart impression. And I feel like that worked really well. So I really enjoyed them playing up aspects of Hitchcock's particular um, suspense tropes, not necessarily the man in peril type tropes um but the suspense tropes uh to great effect the problem is is that hitchcock always had a really good payoff and the payoff in this jane the virgin episode basically just makes me go okay and it was my response to us finding out that raf is not a soldano dun 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 was my response to that how did you you basically said it'll change everything except we don't really have a sense of how it's going to change everything so do you have you seem to have a similar kind of lackluster response to that big moment and it kind of landing kind of flat okay well for two things first of all how much would i have loved for at least half the episode to be that hitchcock thing like are you kidding me <laughs> it looked amazing uh, and and I would have loved to get to see those characters like that they were doing those like those tropes or those types for Hitchcock, like rather than talking about how it's so Hitchcockian, like let's just show it, do that, do that sequence, do a full sequence instead of like thirty seconds, and it would have been amazing. Second of all, the only thing I'm interested in with this whole um, uh, Raph is in the Solano arc is that he's an illegal immigrant now. We find. He's not an American citizen. So that lets them bring up these issues of immigration again on the show in, if they want to, if they engage with that in a way that is real, could be really interesting and really powerful. Uh, we'll see if they do that. And given my perspective on adoption, he is a Solano as far as I'm concerned. Now, this is going to raise a lot of really serious emotional issues for him, uh, understandably, but he's still like okay so he when he was a very small child 
small, you know, young enough that he doesn't have any memories of it, he was adopted by this family. What, how does that change anything about his entire life? I mean, I don't think it does. It's just like a weird thing that he found out. So when they're talking about, oh, it's going to change everything, it's like, I don't think it should. You know, if, I don't think that makes sense, Joe. You know? So that's sort of where I was at with that. And if you're going to really build up an entire episode, you do need a payoff, like you said. Hitchcock's, you know, the, 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 when they have the twist or the, the, the dramatic moment is always a really significant thing. Without that, the, the movie doesn't work. And without that here, the episode doesn't work. And so for me, it doesn't really work. Right. I, I feel like the decision to engage in the Hitchcock-ness of it all requires that. And I think your point about the potential immigration storyline and the potential um, where he fits basically into a culture, I think could be an interesting question. But so much of Raph is tied up in all of these conspiracy criminal type stuff that I feel like it could kind of get weirdly muddled in a lot of ways unless they really refocus. Um, and I don't, I'm not fully convinced that they can because I don't, like you said, even though he's adopted, I don't think this really necessarily changes his relationship to other people. It certainly doesn't change like his relationship to Louisa in any way, shape or form, because I mean, he's, I don't feel like that's going to change him and his relationship to her in any significant way beyond, well, we're not related by blood but who who cares i still care about you i still want what's best for you and this sort of thing i think is still a part of who he is but i feel like if we are going to like go into this weird sort of identity crisis for him i don't know that there's enough there there to justify that um i also wasn't particularly enamored of the storylines we got for roe or for rogelio or for zoe um, the little bit we got for Alba was was nice, but you know, it's this you know, you got Alba, Abuela, uh, but th there was there very little of that. Um, and as much as, as ridiculous as the Petra stuff is, I would much rather be doing ridiculous Petra shenanigans than yeah. the the stuff that we're getting here. I mean, I think that the show did such terrific work with Rogelio and with Zoe and and their relationship and establishing it and dealing with you know they they bring up the issues of betrayal between them for not you know for not reaching out and saying by the way you have a daughter um they, they, that comes back in a very realistic and powerful way when it's appropriate um the show did a great job building their you know getting them back together and then bringing them to this impasse but now they just don't want to commit to it, and it's frustrating. Um, so because they're just wasting time with this back and forth, and I don't think that Bruce is long for this TV world, uh, and I don't think we're supposed to care about Bruce at all. Um, and I don't, so I don't know why we're wasting our time with this stuff. Like, move Rahelu on, or don't. Move Zoe on, or don't. No, I, no, I agree that it, it feels a little, it feels pretty wheel spinny. Um, mainly because I feel like we don't really have a terrific sense of Bruce, really. Um, yeah. Which is a big and then problem. then he's terrible. We trust right. Jane on this. Yeah. Uh, not being able to see what Zoe sees in Bruce is really frustrating. And I, we're getting just like 
secondhand stuff about Bruce as opposed to firsthand stuff about Bruce. And that's never a good way to establish a weird sort of romantic pining triangle sort of situation. We need a reason to either loathe Bruce directly as an audience, or we need a reason to really see why Bruce is a viable option. Um, so that's kind of troubling. And then we're just going to toss in the matchmaker as sort of a business baby partner for Rogelio, which was just kind of odd. Um, and I didn't enjoy the speed dating with the um, celebrities. Um, it just, it all felt really forced and silly, but not in a good Rogelio silly way, but in a bad Rogelio silly way. As in, we have this kind of an idea, so we're gonna do this, but there's no way to extend their whole matchmaker to the stars type of um, poking that they're doing in any way when you're also doing, well, what are we going to do with her baby about faith? And then we have this envelope that's going to change everything. And a lot of this, I think, just comes down to the show, the, the episode itself just didn't blend the show's different tones very well this week. And normally it's something that they do very, very well. And this week, everything just kind of felt a little scattershot. Well, any final thoughts on Jane or hopes for when it comes back? Uh, I, I, a little bit of me hopes they just walk back this envelope thing, but that's not going to happen. So my hope is that they really kind of commit to demonstrating what this means to Raph in a way that makes sense for his character, and but also just doesn't end up tipping the boat in any real way. Like, I need it to matter to Raph, but I need it to kind of not matter to the rest of the show, which is a terrible thing to say, but I'm trying to figure out what it means for the show. And again, like the buildup over, it'll change everything. I need pretty quickly to see how it's going to change everything rather than a very slow burn. Uh, what about you? No, that, uh, I, I can agree with that. And um, mostly it just... Yeah, it's just the more I think about it, the more frustrated I am with the episode because there there's so many things that they could be exploring with these characters that they've already set up, but that they've just kind of set aside here. Like, and I also, God, Catalina, she's the worst, terrible, <laughs> um, so insufferable, and so full of it. So it's going to be satisfying when Jane is proved right, but I just don't care. You know, like she's like Petra uh, is. Like the stuff, the various you know shenanigans we've done with Petra, it, we've also liked Petra while yeah. she's being an antagonist or shifty or something. Um, but with she's just so insufferable that I can't don't really enjoy the other stuff, you know. So it, it's it's okay. It's not a problem. Like I would like if they could bring that to some sort of interesting you know resolution or just get me to like or care about Cat. That would be a big help with that as well. Because she's, again, she's just so... I don't have a better word than insufferable, so I'm just going to return to that. Um, but, yeah, I don't think they need to be heaping on more storylines because they have plenty of things they could be exploring that are interesting and have a lot of potential that they just kind of set to the side for this episode. So I guess I'm hoping for more focus, maybe, uh, when we return. I could do with more focus as well, yes. Yeah. Well, we got plenty of focus um, this week in our last so show for our, our week in comedy and drama, and that's Queen Sugar, uh, which had its season one finale, Give Us This Day, um, which had, you know, talk about, that's an that's a end of episode, end of season bombshell there, you know, that they do in this episode. But, but for more, for me, it, this was about, um, again, just 
checking in with these siblings and you know i thought i think they've done a terrific job in this first season of establishing a world and, and getting us very invested in it how, how did you feel about the finale and how this you know the first season is shaped up uh this is i've like been drafting my uh, top 20 list and this is this show is very high up there like in the drafting i'm doing um and the finale really kind of sealed it in terms of this episode for me was very much just charlie's chance to shine as well as um duan lynn gardner who's been doing great work all season but she's just finding lots of different stuff to do in this episode as charlie tries to navigate securing loans to start the sugar mill herself um to deal with all the other folk the um borderlands um, around her and to like rebuild this kind of empire legacy and the tensions that this brings up between the kids and it's all just it's really uh, sorry not the um borderlands um who i can never remember the name of the other family it doesn't matter um oh the langley's the yes landry Langry. yes yeah um so the 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 people who basically have monopoly on everything except their their land um so watching her navigate and try to piece everything together was really really great and watching the compromises that she's trying to make to secure some sense of independence for herself uh in this new place has was really exciting to watch and i just i could not get enough of it like everything else that was happening in the episode like with nova and dealing with um too sweet and also her um the return of her cop boyfriend that kind of stuff felt very much like establishment for season two uh within the context of this finale because for me this was just charlie 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 all the way and i was just i was eating it up as i was trying to fall asleep to get up for my four o'clock um needing to depart to make my flight so i was very excited i was very invested in it but in and we can talk about this as well because you seem maybe more keen on it than i was in the sense that the big bombshell of the finale of um darla finding this lock randomly finding this locked tin box and it having a updated will from Ernest in which everything gets left to Ralph Angel just felt really contrived to me um, in a sense of we needed something really big to go into season two with another reason for these three kids to three kids, these three siblings to be in conflict with one another over. We needed this one other thing on top of everything. And it felt really just kind of contrived because it just kind of, it came out of nowhere and it came out of Darla just poking around in a closet. And I just kind of rolled my eyes at the apparent, the show apparently thinking that this was a necessity when just dealing with the fact that Charlotte wants to turn this into an empire, basically. And Ralph Angel being like, no, the farm's enough. And Nova just kind of splitting the difference of, I think it's great that you want to do this, sis, but Nova's never really felt as much a part of this process as much as Ralph Angel and Charlie are for obvious reasons because she has a livelihood in that the other two do not in this area so I was kind of less than lukewarm about that cliffhanger even if the 
images and the swelling music and everything that came about with it worked on me really, really well. And watching Charlie sketch Queen Sugar in the dirt at the foot of the badly in needs of renovation mill um was a deeply powerful moment um but it was sort of undercut by i felt like a unnecessary complication but how did you feel about the finale and the season as a whole as we kind of go into year end stuff well i'll start with the the end of it because for me it really worked for a few reasons and the biggest one being that i bought I bought it as something that uh, Ern, uh, Ernest would, would have done, you know, would, that he would have left the farm to Ralph Angel. Like, I could buy him doing that, and, and that being, those being his wishes, and looking at his, his, his daughters and seeing, you know, they're both settled in their lives very much away from the farm, and, and Ralph Angel is trying to, it was out and was trying to, to, do what was best for blue and trying to reestablish himself. Like I, I mean, he being the only one that might have a connection to the farm. I totally bought that. Um, it also brought for me the, the season a bit full circle by, by reintroducing him as a, a factor in what was going on. So the, the season started so powerfully with, with him and with what you know, where his position, his connection with with Blue, and 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 then his death, and so bringing him back into play as a you know, giving him a voice, you know, I guess in the in the end of the season finale by saying, well, this again, like a reminder of this is what he wanted, and underlining what Ralph Angel has been saying throughout the episode um, of this focus on the farm and not on you know, like you know. Charlie's thing that she's trying to do is terrific, but it's not about the farm. It's not about her father. It's about her, and that's great, but she's trying to conflate these, you know, all of this. And so I thought it was nice that they found a way to give him, even though he's gone, even though he's dead, a bit of a voice in everything that's been going on. Also, I think that they had come to a bit of a standstill, like – uh, they were, they were, the dynamic with the siblings was a little stuck in that Ralph Angel just had no position and had no uh, bargaining power in the, their dynamic. Um, and so, so this gives him a chip he can play if he wants to. And watch, I don't think he'll just say, well, I, I really own the land, so neener, neener, neener. Um, <laughs> I think that'll from the the work that the show has done over the season. They've earned my trust that they're gonna. That'll be a some a thing that he's got to consider and think about and and come to terms with before he does anything on it. And I look forward to to watching that that progression next season. Um, I also really like uh, the way that they've handled the Ralph Angel and Darla relationship um, over the course of the season. I hope that they continue to have the to take the same care with it next season. Um, and the the you know the slight thawing of Aunt Vi towards Darla, <laughs> slight was I think I think I think was significant in this episode. I really appreciated that, um, and so having that be something that they share, and having her not and having her be very, so in his corner with this stuff, and saying it's not about them. As mad as you are at your sisters, this is about you respecting yourself. 
um, I thought was really significant. And so, yeah, I, I guess that whole, the whole sequence worked for me for, as, as a way to fuel the next season, but also it felt appropriate to me to bring things back to the farm and to the, the grandfather's, or the, the father's wishes. Um, as for the rest of the episode, yeah, it was very much Charlie's story, but I, I thought they did a good, pretty good job balancing with, with Nova too, you know, like bringing the, the cop, back and and complicating you know their dynamic and and not forgetting about the um the uh uh the tricky ties between the work she's doing and the police department and i like that that's they're not just moving past that to a new chapter i like that they are continuing to make to to show how complicated those relationships can be i think this is by far the best episode we've seen on any uh, uh, network or, or cable channel uh, talking about Black Lives Matter. Like, it's not even close. It was amazing, the, the scene they gave Nova, uh, her, her talk. Um, I would love to see more shows have this level of um, understanding and nuance to their interaction with, with, with the movement, um, or at least as I understand it. Super white girl here, not, very, not as, inv- as involved as I probably should be. But, uh, but I really appreciated the, that sequence as well. And um, as for Charlie, I, I hope they're not going too straight up, like, I don't know, and season seven, Alicia Florrick, or, you know, like, because <laughs> she, she, she's selling out survivors of sexual assault in this episode. She's happy to do it. And yes, a million-dollar donation to a charity to help um, sex workers but she's still like using and and letting down survivors of sexual assault to get where she's going and she's very comfortable doing that it seems um so i hope that we are not starting down a path of ah see she's going to become a villain and she's going to be just as bad as them because that's a story that a show like this could easily decide it wants to do but i've seen that story and i don't think i'm not interested in that story so that's my only leeriness with where they may be, but hopefully are not taking Charlie. Any thoughts? What, what, what do you think about all of that? I've, I've thrown a lot out there. No, um, I, I, I very much appreciate your read on the end of the episode and how... Am I excusing away the contrivances? <laughs> ex- basically, yes. Um, I appreciate how you managed to make the contrivances kind of like seem come together in a way that makes sense for the show and everything and is very obviously i think what the show wants to achieve with it i just being able to it's just such a big seam to me that i can't get past it um and that's 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 more on me being like someone who values structure probably more than i really should sometimes that I just, my immediate response is, well, but you could have set this up much sooner than Darla looking for a blanket or something. I don't know quite how that was working. (laughs) And so that whole process just made everything kind of tilt off for me. Uh, As for the Nova stuff, I very much agree with you in that them quickly realizing that they can't gloss over her relationship with the police force through Calvin was, who's the name of the cop, I'm looking at it right now to make sure that we said his name this time, was really, really uh, important. And I think 
was interesting that for the show to a, a new wrinkle because one of the things that i kind of struggled with nova was that she, all of her plots seemed kind of like half in half out in a lot of ways there were good concepts flowing through it like you said with her talk concerning uh black lives matter and the criminal justice system and all of that i think worked really well but i never felt like deeply connected to like the too sweet stuff that was happening in ways that i felt like I felt like the show was saying things, but it never really coalesced into a really big plot for me in the way that a lot of the Charlie stuff did, or a lot of the Blue stuff did, or even a lot of the Aunt Vi stuff, which is really great in this episode, as uh, Hollywood goes off on a long haul on a rig for six months, and just watching Vi collapse in that was much more affecting than a lot of the other stuff that we've gotten with Nova. So I'm hoping like when we come back next season that the show figures out a way to really focus Nova in a way that I don't feel like they managed to achieve this season. And maybe that's just me and wanting Rutina Wesley to have everything to do because I love her. She's fantastic. And I always want more of her. And then that just leaves whether or not Charlie's going to become a villain. And I'm, I was watching it and I had the same thought you did about, oh my God, she's becoming Alicia Floric. And I, I got excited in the sense that we're getting a different kind of, like a sped up version of that. But we're also like seeing a woman who's willing to make a great deal of compromises. And I'm interested in seeing more so, I feel like that this show will deal with the ramifications of those compromises in ways that the good wife just never fully committed to and especially towards the end but i feel like there's plenty of room now that they've kind of like did this as their act one ending that season two can really deal with the fallout of her manipulating all these people around her to achieve this one end and i think that that's going to be really interesting to see how that play out how that plays out considering the fact that they played a very long game on um the first um the first um the first woman that came forward with the allegations they played a really nice long game with that i think in terms of how she was presented how she came about and charlie's response to her so i feel like there's room for it even if going back to a sort of a structure issue a lot of this stuff also happens off screen and that was that bothered me to a certain degree not as much as like the tin tin canister did but it still bothered me in the sense that a lot of this is happening off where whenever charlie was arranging things in between scenes and i'm never a big fan of those kind of shortcuts happening but overall i was very happy with it and I'm, i think i'm a little more eager to see how charlie expands and has to deal with the moral implications of what she's doing than maybe necessarily you are which given what you just said i think may be accurate hmm. uh first of all uh aunt vi and hollywood otp oh god so otp i was like when they're on the phone and he's in the cafeteria and he's just like six months and i'm just like no no i was like i was super close to crying <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, Anvai, you did this to yourself through your response to his not being divorced from his wife so that his wife can stay on his health insurance. Yeah. I mean, 
obvious like it's not even close obviously she is wrong like it's very understandable yes why she'd be upset but you know like you you made this bed now you have to lie in it and it's you're gonna get a lot of long distance calls racked up but that's you know that's where you're at so let's make it work time um and also i really appreciated that um charlie's scheming Already cost her her dreamboat new boyfriend. You are so not on that Remy train at all. No, well, I like <laughs> Remy, but right. the, sh- the show, like the, it was just not. I don't think it was anywhere near as interestingly or or creatively or or even just on a craft level written as well as mm-hmm. every other part of the show. So uh, yeah, I liked that that there are already. I, I like that they gave Remy enough like self respect and. And says it's like yeah yeah you're pretty amazing but I'm not gonna do this mm-hmm. like, like he saw the warning signs with the date that she blew off and some other things and then went you know what not getting I don't need this and with Davis you know playing in town now it that's only gonna get crazier so uh, that that was something I certainly appreciated uh, coming to a head so quickly and not, them not really dragging that out into the next season, which I'm sure it'll be reestablished next season. Don't oh, get me wrong. Totally. Yeah. But at least for now, you know, it's a strong stance for him to take. So I appreciated that as well. Any final thoughts on, on queen sugar? I like down in the Treme coming up. I was like, oh, I need to watch Treme again. It's so good. Uh, no, no final thoughts. Like I said at the top, this is going to be pretty high on my end of year list. And I'm already like looking at the cast list going, all right, who gave really great performances? Who can I single out? And that kind of thing. All of them. Right. All of them. But it was just like, I was thinking like looking at the cast list right now, I was just thinking like dream Emmy ballad type stuff and going like, well, I need Gardner to get a nomination. I really want Tina Lifford, who plays Violet, to get a nomination. And just all of this going through my head. But, I mean, I'm super excited about a second season. I'm so glad we're getting a second season of Queen Sugar. Yeah, no, me too. And, and again, the cinematography, the the direction, the editing, the music has been terrific throughout. It's been a really strong first season for Queen Sugar. And it's been it's been great to see it actually get some attention um out there unlike some other shows that we were following this year right and also attention for like all 13 episodes being directed by women um which is terrific and something that like jessica jones is going to be doing in season two as well but like it's queen sugar like established this and was just like we're we're making a big commitment to doing this and i think that that's really great and it's really significant yeah um well what wins your week in comedy and drama and the other i know there's a certain ice skating show that gave you a lot of feels this week it did uh yuri and ice did give me quite a bit of feels this week um because there was running in an airport and then there was hugging and then there was a lot of hugging prior to that which was kind of weird and creepy but also very funny but um it's definitely the queen sugar finale for me this week uh yuri on ice comes very close i swear we'll actually incorporate yuri on ice into a discussion when I remembered <laughs> it. Um, but no, it's uh, Queen Sugar this week. Uh, what about you? Uh, I caught up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I caught up on Bob's. I caught up on a bunch of different shows that uh, we just didn't talk about this week because we didn't have specific things to, to, to point to. Uh, but I still have to give it to the Queen Sugar finale. We're going to be checking in on, on, on Rectify 
next week, listeners. So, so that might have been in contention for me, but I'm still behind on it. Uh, but of the things that I did watch, a lot of terrific, a lot of really, a lot of fun comedies. I mean, uh, just uh, catching up on Brooklyn Nine Nine. The full bullpen. Amy's dad is like oh, so great, so good. Yes, so perfect. Anyways, um, but but yeah, definitely this week I'll give it to the Queen Sugar finale. It's been a terrific season. I'm so glad that we get the show and we get to watch it. And thank you, Oprah Winfrey Network, um, for for putting the show on the air. But uh, that will wrap up our week in comedy and drama. Then we'll now we'll take a break and listen to a little music, a little mini song from C. It's not a very short song, but we're still gonna go with it from Steven Universe, and come back with our week in genre. I could never be. I could never be, I could never be ready for this. I could never be, I could never be, I could never be ready. Things start and things end, and isn't it lovely in theory, but I could never be, I could never be, I could never be ready. Our latest original song from Steven Universe. Um, this week, uh, we, in genre, we're going to be talking about that episode of Steven Universe, Three Gems and a Baby. Uh, Noel's going to be talking about Incorporated, which had its premiere. And then we'll both be talking Supergirl, Medusa, and then the, the DC CW crossover, Flash, Arrow, and Legends uh, called Invasion. No, sorry, I can do that better. Invasion! Is that a good exclamation point? There you go. On there? Okay. Yes. Um, so yeah. first up is Steven Universe, which you haven't had a chance to see yet, uh, Noel, so I will keep it brief and as spoiler-free as I can. Sad. I was Sad. Sad. <laughs> I was so... Because I didn't realize that it was airing this week until I saw a tweet from Rebecca Sugar saying that it was, and then just my little heart grew several sizes. Uh, this was so sweet. I'm glad that they did just the standard, you know, 11, you know, without commercials and everything, minutes. Um, I, I love that they are continuing the trend of every time um, Greg tries to tell Stephen a, a memory or a story, you know, about him growing up or anything like that. Stephen just goes, eh, eh, but, 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 guitar. You have to sing it. You promised. <laughs> so... Then we get the little song uh, from the, from this episode. I would have liked it to be a bigger song, like to have more. Like I, there's so much potential with that idea. Um, I would love to see, you know, a return to that at some point. But um, I don't know that there was space in this episode. What we get with the flashback to baby Steven and and the gems and, and Greg kind of dealing with that and their um, confusion over what a baby is and 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 them all trying to reckon with. Have, you know human baby but with a gem and what does that mean and each you can watch each of the different um gems a- trying to get a, a handle on things or greg um you know, like the, steven starts glowing and they go wait do do human what do you do when human babies glow <laughs> and, and greg, <laughs> greg says they, they don't oh but what if they do and i just don't know you know like so like it, it, there's a uh, 
it was a really well thought out and, and executed episode. Really sweet. And um, I look forward to your thoughts, Noel, when you watch it. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I continue to love the way that they frame and clothe Greg in so many of these episodes. Here, he's he he's in the Virgin Mary role. He's in a blue blanket that's wrapped over his head like a cloak, which is very much the Virgin Mary, um, you know, uh, iconography. Well, right. Yeah. Uh, and you yeah. have the three gems as the three three wise men um, around, you know, baby Stephen. Um, so so just like in Mr. Greg, they had him in a, a white bathrobe as he was dancing with Pearl in a tuxedo, you know, putting him in. Um, what would be considered the more traditionally female or, or like the bridal kind of uh, coding. And then here he's in the Virgin Mary role. And I think that that is really, really lovely and smart and says a lot about um, the way the show, how the show thinks of him. And, you know, just, I, I thought it was just a great connection to make. And I think a lot of people would not have made that connection. And that's part of what makes Steven Universe um, the show that it is. And, how uh, special and unique that it is because the people behind the show do make these connections, do think about what this different imagery means and, you know, do a winter special playoff of three men and a baby, three men and a baby, three gems and a baby, um, and then connect it to all these other ideas as well at the same time. And there are some, like, there's a really dark moment and then there's some really funny stuff and, like, <laughs> amethyst shape-shifting down to baby size to try to, like, understand <laughs> she's like okay now shape shift back up and Stephen doesn't she's like well, shape shift back up you know it's it's really it was a really terrific episode and after being a little underwhelmed with the previous one um I was very pleased with this one so I'll leave it there and let I don't want to spoil anything else um so I look forward to your thoughts Noel when you have seen it uh now should I be as excited about Incorporated, which had its premiere, sci-fi channel show that had its premiere, as I know that you should be about Steven Universe. Ah, um, I don't, I can't answer that really well. Uh, Vertical Mobility, which is the name of the premiere, uh, is very piloty, um, and it it didn't grab me in a way that, like I think when we discussed the fall preview that I was actually really very excited about this because this is a show that takes place in like 2074. Uh, most of the, most of the world's countries have gone bankrupt due to crises and climate change and that sort of thing. That so doesn't feel timely multi- at all. No, it doesn't feel timely at all. So multinational corporations have basically become governments. And they control various areas um, around the world that are called green zones. And these are zones that are seemingly just in bubbles of urban dystopic beauty, while everything else is called red zones. And they're basically just big slums. And which gets into like my first immediate problem with the show is I'm not entirely sure how the urban, the urban company space works and how they're like there are walls around them but they're all much nicer and i'm not sure why they're much nicer so a lot of this just immediately becomes an issue of the world building is like really kind of spotty in this first episode which i mean i don't need a lot of immediately but i had large questions about just how this society works within incorporated 
to a lesser extent, the show is about a, well, to the more pressing, I shouldn't say the lesser extent, the actual point of the show is not Noel being obsessed with world-building politics in 2074, but the fact that a fellow from the Red Zone is posing as this guy named Ben Larson, who works for this company slash country called Spiga. The one thing I will say for this show is that their multinational corporation names are super spot on because um, Spiga sounds like a uh, sounds like a multinational corporation that does everything and you have no idea what it is I'm pretty sure it already exists oh yeah yeah so, um, so there's all this stuff he's trying to find a um, his girlfriend for that is like after he moved in and he's like trying to i think he's trying to bring speaker down from the inside he has dewey crow helping him uh who is virtually unrecognizable in cleaned up and in a suit i will say that it took me a few minutes to go that's dewey crow i've never seen him look that good before <laughs> and so I, I can't recommend this based on the first episode, um, mainly because I just have a lot of questions about how this is different and how it feels different from any other sort of dystopic thing. What makes it different about the fact that these multinational corporations are in charge as opposed to just an authoritarian government? What makes this different? And I don't know the an I don't think that there's an answer to that question presented in the premiere in any way, shape, or form. It could it didn't have to be a corporation. It could have just been random authoritarian government. But there's no sense of why this is different. And that was kind of where I was running into a wall with this premiere is that I didn't know why this dystopia was different from any other dystopia I've seen before. So I'm going to watch more and if only because we're entering a dry period and sci-fi is just like, screw you dry periods. We're going to run you straight through the entire December when there's nothing on TV, which is what's happening. Like they have new episodes basically through February and it's just like, okay, well, we'll, I'll watch because I have no other options right now, but I'm giving it kind of a short leash based on this first episode. Yeah, I feel like it wouldn't be with these sort of, again, dystopian sci-fi shows. There's been a bunch of them, especially if you also include um, film or, or comics or, or, or movies. Um, specificity is so key. To, to getting me to invest in your, you know, in we either going super stylized so you're commenting on and playing with the tropes um, in a very distinct and um, interesting way or making sure that, you know, and so like going general because you're doing that or being very specific about your, the, you know, the way that world works is really important otherwise it just kind of blends all together and doesn't give you a reason that you should stick with it so that is it's a little dis uh, disappointing to to hear um but yeah we'll see if i if i make time for this one like you said we're entering a, a less full um bit of tv which means that i'm going to be catching up on other shows <laughs> which, yes which is nice i appreciate i'll appreciate having a little catch-up time here um but um yeah i was hoping to want to rush out you know, I was hoping you were going to say, go, got to watch it right away, Kate. It's going to be really great. They had a really cool thing at Comic-Con, but, um, um, oh, well, 
I guess we'll we'll see we'll see what the next few weeks like where this lands on my priority list. Like like I like there's a show on Amazon. I want to say it's Amazon Chewing Gum. It's a UK show that I want to check out. It's Netflix, right? I've heard very good things about it. Yeah, and so, so again, if you're not going to give me a distinct reason why I should check out your show in the at this point in the first episode, I don't need a lot, but I think needs to be at least one thing that's really you know compelling you to come back whether it's a performance or a concept or really great direction in cinematography or something um then it's just kind of hard to make the case but we'll we'll see what happens with it thank you for your thoughts on that this week um are you ready now to talk to talk supergirl and dc and crossover and shared universes Let's do it. Let's, but we need to talk about Medusa first because Supergirl had very little to do with the crossover in her episode, which made sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, let's talk about Medusa and their mid-season finale because they're they're wrapped up for this year. Uh, so, how did you feel about uh, the premi- the mid-season finale of Medusa and everything that we got with this Cadmus virus to kill all the aliens? Um, I thought that it was a solid episode. Um, I liked the way that they handled the Maggie and Alex stuff, if they were going to get them together this quickly, I thought the way they handled it kind of worked and made sense. Um, and I know uh, a lot of people really love the execution of that scene and the, the dialogue especially. And um, so, so I thought that, you know, which has been such a strong point of the show uh, in this season, I thought that was handled really well. Uh, the hand-waving away of the, the green and white Martian-ness oh yeah yeah i mean like, like i'm glad yeah. that they i knew that they were going to fix him so that he would still be a green martian but like that was a little too quick and convenient um so that was a disappointing element but uh on the whole the th- i thought having this be the thanksgiving episode was nice i, I really like them bringing in the mom um and having her be more involved i mean like she's an she's an alien expert that's why Kara was brought to her and and the you know and Jeremiah to be raised so why wouldn't she you know get called in every now and again I thought that that made sense and, and worked well and it gave it a nice kind of uh, holiday theme I liked the banter with <laughs> Alex and James and Win about no this is my coming out Thanksgiving and you're not messing it up uh, as she gets like more and more drunk uh, I thought that that worked well and um, yeah I just I, th- I thought it was a solid if not great episode and. I, and I'm not more disappointed that we got so little cast crossover because I know there's another crossover coming. Because I know that there's that Flash and Supergirl musical episode coming, I am not disappointed that we didn't get to see Wynn and Cisco interact, for example. It's going to happen so soon, and it's going to be so good. It it's is. It's going to be like... It's going to be like when Barry and Kara met for the first time. Yeah. And it's it's just going to feel so good. Yeah. It's going to feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on, on Supergirl before we get to, to the crossover? Any thoughts on, on the stuff with Alex or, or you know, the, the, the what we were getting with um, Monel and, you know, him and Kara and all that shipping? Right. Well, I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that I'm still shipping Kara and Lena much more than I'm shipping Kara and Monel. <laughs> and um, so Monel 
probably faking that he does faking that he doesn't remember kissing her um feels like a kind of a way to draw this out but also a way for lena to still have her chance uh but lena to still have her chance is kind of what i focused on like i enjoyed all the stuff that you talked about particularly the thanksgiving coming out stuff was really really funny and the cast is just really jiving with one another much more since they shifted to CW. I don't know what it is. I don't, I, I'm not quite sure what's, what happened in the interim. Maybe everyone just likes Vancouver a lot more than they like LA. I don't know. But the, that whole sequence back and forth and even like the interplay of Kara putting the alcohol in the freezer and then you see slightly out of focus alex going in and getting it and sneaking behind Kara and um, eliza as they talk to one another it's really really good bit of like background comedy it's very very funny but the the thing i ended up focusing on was whether or not lena was like positioning herself to be the do-gooder or if she's like looking to to eliminate her mom as a factor so that she can enter Cadmus in some way and either take it down from within. I'm really interested in what the show's going to do with Lena if they're setting up kind of like a Lex Luthor, Clark Kent, Smallville sort of scenario, which is the comparison I saw a lot of people making on Twi on my East Coast Twitter um, while it was on there. And so I'm interested in seeing that storyline develop, I think, more than a number of other people are. But I'm, I'm excited about that, um, if only because I really like the interplay between Kara uh, and Lena a lot. Just not on a, like, oh, they belong together and they're giving long looks to one another, in that it's another female character for the show to really play off of and to engage with. And I'm really excited to see where that goes forward. Um, but yeah, let's, yeah, let's... Let's talk about the big invasion crossover that um, they've been hyping up for eons now. Um, how did you feel about it um, as like a whole um, before I think we can kind of dig? Basically, I think the thing is, is like we can talk about it in terms of Flash and Legends of Tomorrow and that Arrow's kind of like its own deal since it was their 100th episode and they kind of went, uh, we're going to talk about the crossover, but... Not really. <laughs> um, I thought that on the whole, it was a lot of fun. I, th I think they achieved what they were going for. And, it, you know, like when you're a fan of superhero shows or um, just things in this genre, um, it's just fun to see a team up. Like, it's, it's like, wouldn't it be cool if? Yes, yeah. it would be cool. And that's, they knew exactly what they were going for, and they executed it pretty well. I thought they did a, a decent job of utilizing most of the cast um, and, you know, limiting some of them to their own show, but, um, like, diff like, spreading them out with different, you know, groups of people that made sense. So having, having Caitlin and um, uh, Victor Garber, whose name escapes... Martin Stein. Yeah, Martin Stein together for all three episodes and having uh felicity and cisco together because and they're also buds so you know that just they makes sense yeah. they would want to spend time together like i think they did a good job with their various pairings um there's a couple really glaring mistakes for me uh one being i don't buy for a second the the fake tension between oliver and Kara. i don't buy for a second he'd be like i'm xenophobic and this is a lot so just the strongest arsenal like weapon in our arsenal go go away you know like i don't buy for a second he would do that um also 
I was really, really disappointed that they did not have a scene at some point with Sarah and her dad. I don't understand how you don't do that scene. Um, that was, yeah, I thought that was a major, major oversight. Um, but other than that, I thought it was really fun. <laughs> Uh, I thought it was I thought it was a great deal of fun too. Um, I agree. I hadn't even thought about the Sarah and Quentin thing, but you're absolutely correct because I don't even think that they like connect in the dream world that the Dominators put all the non-metahumans in for the Arrow episode where they flash. They do a it's a wonderful life um, mm -hmm. for Arrow basically, and I don't even think that Sarah and Quentin run into each other there. I think Quentin's like in the police headquarters and that's it. Yeah. And yeah, that's. I can kind of understand it because on some level it's very much like there's given everything that's happening with Quentin on Arrow with his alcoholism and his potential patsy for Prometheus um, there's introducing you can't do justice to him seeing his daughter and what that means to him within the confines of an alien invasion and I understand the impulse to not have that, but to not even have it in the little alien dream world happen is or, an oversight. Or to have Sarah say, I'm going to go visit my dad and then walk off screen, yeah. you know, like, and we don't need to see it. Like, or, and they also don't, I think, want to make her the bad guy by having her see the state her dad is in and then leave again. Yeah. So if they want Which is say, also a really good point. I could see that, but I could see Sarah not, like, like backing off from that like basically being cowardly with that a little and not wanting to see your dad because she doesn't think she can handle it or whatever but then i think they needed to have somebody else see say are you do you, you want to go see your dad you know like like mm -hmm. that thea absolutely should have said something um when they're all hanging out together you know it's very strange for her to not and then because and you could have even had sarah say i just i i can't but i'm glad that you're taking care of him like they, they could yeah. have had something and so it just felt it was that was the biggest thing for me did you, did you have any inter like how do you feel about the super girl or the Kara and um and uh uh oliver tension it's such a very bad they they very much just went i mean oliver is very much the universe's batman so they immediately needed him to be suspicious of the super person in the group because that's what batman was initially was uh, how batman's conceptualized is often now suspicious of superman and so they very much wanted to kind of establish that parallel and it doesn't work in part because like you said it's just a really rush and oliver's far too pragmatic of a leader and a tactician to go eh you sit this out super powered person who could defeat and did defeat all of us by not even doing anything mm -hmm. and it, it's just a very forced parallel that they're trying to draw plus i mean how do you say no no Kara? even even heat wave is just kind of like is kind of into this whole thing and i'm just like i that was kind of like the standout parts to me about all of this apart from Kara and barry teaming up to do various things was Kara's polite horror at McRory was just the best thing ever. And Melissa Benoist was just really just sold the sheer terror of meeting a psychopath. 
and not knowing how to deal with that in a way that doesn't involve running away to someone else. Because this is by far and away the scariest man she's probably ever met. And um, so I really enjoyed like how that was comedically dangerous, but not like, oh, dangerous. Uh, the I, other I, thing... I could watch a Go solid half-hour show of McRory and Sarah Lance's Hot or Not. Oh, <laughs> the, I mean, it was such a throwaway line, but I really, really. Yeah, well, and, and she that. she meets Supergirl. She's like, oh, she's a badass. Yep, also yeah. hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was that was one of the other big takeaways was the fact that much more so than on some of the episodes of Legends of Tomorrow, even though it's been kind of their central tension that this felt like Sarah as a leader within this universe is, I think, really significant and really fun and really important to have Sarah forward as a bisexual who predominantly prefers women, but still she's forward, she's the leader of this team, she's giving Barry a lecture about time travel, and I think that it's just really meaningful that she's out there representing this particular show in this capacity. And I think that's really, really great. Um, the only other thing I have about this is the fact that all of this is still Barry's fault. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which feeds into a lot of what The Flash is doing on its own show with him grappling with what the ramifications of Flashpoint. And one of the ramifications of Flashpoint was to cause an alien invasion. Way to go, Barry. And I thought that that was really significant, but uh, the producers have basically said that starting next week, they're kind of like stepping away from Flashpoint as like a plot, plot motivating to really kind of focus in on a number of other things that are happening on that particular show. So this felt like the primary big fallout from, from Flashpoint, but a lot of it was also just kind of like, everyone just kind of ended up rolling with it at the end. I mean, even like Cisco's thawed in terms of treating Barry as his friend as opposed to his co-worker and I liked how that played out but again it played out very comparatively quickly um, and I was enjoying the fact that Barry was kind of isolated from his team in a lot of ways and I thought that was a really interesting dynamic for them to explore yeah well and I don't the way that it was actually handled um, the dialogue they gave Cisco to be, oh, I've become what I despise in Barry. It was like, yes, exactly. Like, even he was, Carlos uh, uh, was, I because we're buddies, we're on first name terms. I don't remember his last name. It starts with a V, right? Uh, Carlos Valdez, yeah. Carlos Valdez um, was terrific. He was doing his best to sell the dialogue, but it was just, it was, wasn't very good. Um, but, but using, so while the moment of revelation uh, wasn't, was kind of botched the progression over the three episodes having some like thematic through lines to those episodes and having it be a progression of getting us to everybody's cool with Barry by the end and or, or cool enough you know um I think was was smart and worked well um I thought that era was terrific I thought it was terrific in terms of its place within this let's be honest three-part episode they needed something to change pace in the middle which is very common for something that's paced in this way if you can't just have the three episodes of build so they have like the distraction in the first episode where they're all fighting each other 
that gets resolved and they have the distraction here where they need to go rescue everybody and then they let them actually solve everything in the third episode. So they changed up the pace and they changed up the setting um, very effectively so that we didn't get tired of what was going on. It didn't feel too contrived, at least for me. Um, I also thought it worked really well as a 100th episode. Having a, a good, legitimate, powerful, emotionally powerful reason to bring back Laurel, but, but not just Laurel, of course. Also, you know, both the queen, mom, mom and dad queen, and, and these other characters was really effective. And um, that's the kind of thing that you want to see in the 100th episode, um, hopefully. The, 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 the really unfortunate <laughs> CGI Roy at the end, it's like I appreciate they slid that camera right past that as quick as they could. Um, I would have probably cut that part of it. Um, I enjoyed yeah. uh, the the line about Tommy being a doctor <laughs> in Chicago, um, but you know to explain why he wasn't there. But like, I, I thought on the whole that that episode worked really well and the, functioned well within the arc and within the arc of where Arrow's what Arrow's been doing and everything. I liked that they didn't have it be like um, Ollie's love for Felicity is what you know makes him realize that he's in a fake world where he's marrying Laura. I like that it wasn't that simple. Um, yeah, and I, th- I thought I thought it was like you had said, you know, you tweeted about this before it even aired. This is the best Arrow in quite a long time, and I certainly agree. Yeah, no, I'll co-sign all of that in part because I need to wrap up. Hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely agree that it's by far and away the best episode that they've done in a while, and it was a really fitting kind of way for Oliver to go forward as he again tries to figure out how to be the green arrow and this is a nice reminder of what he's fighting for and where he's come from and the journey he's taken so far which has been really central to the show so far even if again arrow's just muddling its way through its thematic ideas in ways that just totally don't come together um but they came together really really nicely here and having like james bamford direct the episode uh resulted in a lot of really nice action sequences but bamford is also just really good at staging one takes one shots because that, that whole party sequence is a really good solid take for the most part and it's really well executed and bamford's just probably their best one of their best directors that they have in semi-regular rotation that he should be directing many more of their episodes when he has time in between coordinating all their stunt work (laughs) but yeah the franchise as a whole the this is by far and away of the three crossovers they've done now this is by far and away the best yeah and again the part of why it works is that they keep true to the tone of each of the different shows and of the characters within them and and you get a little chocolate in your peanut butter and so they don't go over to arrow and all of a sudden Kara's gloomy you know like the the, yeah. the characters are true to themselves as they interact with the other characters and the tones and that's what makes it so much fun so um my last question for you with this is best pop culture reference uh for me i'm curious what you, your picks are but for me it was between and they happen within like seconds of each other felicity's language center being messed up and her saying dharma kanjalaya tanagra um, immediately followed by the Princess Bride reference and then the, the calling out of the Princess Bride reference. That was just, I, I think that's my favorite. Uh, my favorite was by far and away Brennan Routh saying to uh, Felicity, <laughs> um, she, she kind of reminds me of my cousin. And then them just staring at one another and then him staring at the camera. And I just, I lost it because it was just <laughs> way, way too funny. And I really liked that sly acknowledgement of him playing Superman and Superman Returns. Yeah. So that tickled my funny bone a great deal. Fair enough. Well, what wins your week in genre? 
Um, I'll give it to the... God, I never thought I would say this. I, I'll give it to the Arrow episode mm-hmm. um, from the Flash crossover, just because it was, by A, by far and away the best Arrow episode, but I think it was also the the most interesting episode of the crossover because of the, like the heavy emotional lifting and also because you had Kara and Barry beating up some folks and that was that's never not fun so I'll give it to um the Arrow episode what about you just occurred to me I really wish they'd uh paid to get um oh my god his name escapes me Slade Wilson Crixus oh um Manau Bennett is yeah, never Bennett. I really back. wish they'd been able to get Manu Bennett in for that fight, man. That would have been even more amazing. Um, uh, and also, a last thought on, on Arrow is that the um, it was there's such attention to detail. I love that in the dream, everybody's drinking booze because they haven't spun into alcoholism and depression <laughs> yet. In, in this dream world, they, that's not a concern. Um, part of a, another another element, you know, kind of hinting that this is a little too good to be true. Um, so it was, they were very pointed about that too. So it was, it was nice, nice attention to detail, but I'm still giving it Steven Universe. Um, you know, with, with, with Arrow almost nipping at its heels, almost, but I'll give it to the Steven Universe. A few show notes here at the end of our week in TV. You can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook, like our page and start up a conversation there, send us a message. Um, you can also, of course, find us on iTunes with an M4A chapter feed, hopefully, once again, chaptered this week. I, hopefully, let me know if it's not, listeners. Um, uh, and you can also uh, find an MP3 unchaptered feed. We would appreciate your thoughts there. Ratings and reviews uh, help other people find the show. And then let us know what you think of how we're doing. So let us know. Um, and, of course, we're both on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. And, Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And while you won't find me writing about the Flash mid-season finale next week, I am doing the Flash more regularly at uh, tvguide.com. Yeah. And now we are going from one uh, crossover <laughs> to another uh, with uh, with talking about Star Trek Enterprise with friend of the show uh, from the V Club, Caroline Sita. Of course, Star Trek Enterprise having one of the more notorious crossovers in its series finale of any of the Trek shows. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, uh, unfortunately, dear listeners, I subject you to the Star Trek Enterprise theme song. We'll be right back after this. For decades, we've dreamed of traveling beyond our solar system. This fall, we will. Today, we are about to cross a new threshold. Witness the beginning of the Star Trek saga. Starfleet seems to think that we're ready to begin our mission. Don't screw this up. The first captain. Request permission to get underway. Take her out, Mr. Mayweather. The first crew. They have two settings, stun and kill. It will be best not to confuse them. The first trek into the final frontier. Neptune and back in six minutes. A new era of discovery is about to begin. Let's go. Enterprise launches Wednesday, September 26th on UPN.
we're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And as you could tell from that move, that music leading into this segment, we are talking about a show that will round out a, a, a series of DVD shelves. And joining us to help with that from the AV Club is Caroline Sita, friend of the show. Welcome back, Caroline. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And that that show is is Enterprise, or as it later became known, Star Trek Enterprise. We'll talk about that later. But we have to start with that horrendous theme song. I hate it so much. Uh, I love all the other Star Trek theme songs, at least parts of them. But I, I hate this. And I think that makes me hate this one even more. I will eventually say some interesting and positive things about Star Trek Enterprise, but I feel like we should just rip off the Band-Aid and start with by far the worst Star Trek theme song of all the series, and then they actually make it worse halfway through the show when they remix it. Am I alone here, guys? If by worst you mean the most fun theme song of all time, then you're correct. Um, I was Insanity. I was telling Kate off mic <laughs> that I think with the Enterprise theme song, you need to listen to it enough times that you sort of get a weird Stockholm syndrome with it, which is where I'm at, where like I just dance around my apartment to that song. I get so excited when it comes on. I mean, it's horrible. But maybe it's also great. It's hard to say. No, it's not. And it's not. <laughs> Noel, your thoughts. I have to agree with Kate because otherwise she'll kick me off the podcast and replace me with Emily Stevens. <laughs> so, um, oh wow, we are lit tonight already. Um, no, I don't think it's particularly good. And I actually revisited um, all the Star Trek theme songs to be like, is this, is this bad or am I just like having a Rod Stewart esque reaction to this in general? And no, it's just went. Wow, no, I actually really like the Voyager theme song, too, still after all these years. Yeah, no, it's this theme song. It's not good. And I was fast-forwarding through it pretty much every time I remembered to do so, which was almost every time. Yeah. Well, and when you think of, apparently, I've heard rumors that um, Archer's theme, which is like this instrumental horn thing, was actually originally going to be the theme song. Um, I, I could be completely wrong here. I think that's the music that they use in the actual in my brain series finale which is the second to last episode of the show and Archer's doing his motivational speech and there's this like kind of very trekky kind of inspirational adventure optimism uh, horn thing going on and I was like see that could have been your theme song and yes you wouldn't have been breaking new ground but here's the thing Star Trek if it's not broke don't fix it and for me that's sort of a theme with Star Trek Enterprise. I feel like I should say up here at the top somewhat. Listeners, I do really genuinely love Star Trek. And in general, I, you're not gonna, that's not going to come through here a lot today. <laughs> but I do love Star Trek. And I, think I mean, that's I why, think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I'm so critical of, of Star Trek Enterprise. Um, yeah, what... How, how, Caroline, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't start. Normally, we start with the guests because it's the guest's choice of show. But this was Noel's choice of show. So, Noel, <laughs> you you made me watch this. What made you <laughs> want to talk about Star Trek Enterprise? And and what's your what was your relationship with the show and the, the the series of shows before you know going back for this DVD shelf? The reason I wanted to do Enterprise was the fact that. Like you said at the top, we're basically rounding out the franchise, at least in terms of live action. We still haven't done the Star Trek animated series yet. So future DVD shelf, but in light of um, Star Trek Discovery um, fast approaching as well as casting news this week, it just seemed appropriate to round out the live action side of the franchise. 
uh, by covering it before Discovery uh, launched, as it were. So that was entirely my main reason for wanting to do this. My secondary motivation was entirely to make you suffer, Kate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And my relationship to Enterprise was basically, I watched like three or four episodes when it first aired and then never, ever went back to it. And so my entire concept of this show is basically everyone I know who watched it going, this show was terrible and or not very good if they were feeling kind of generous. And that's been basically my perception of Enterprise was that this just wasn't particularly good, that a lot of folks who were really, really into Star Trek into a way that I am not particularly into Star Trek feel fairly disappointed with Enterprise, where it's not as vaguely divisive as I think some people can sometimes find Voyager Deep Space Nine, that it just seems semi-unanimous that Enterprise was just kind of the weakest link in the franchise. And I may be wrong about that. Both of you, I know, are much more involved in the intricacies and uh, Star Trek fandom than I am. So is that perception correct? Was I just being really, really mean to both of you by suggesting that we do this? Uh, so how how did you feel about it, um, both of you? I, I I feel like that's being generous, Caroline. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I think Enterprise is pretty much a garbage show, and like, I actually think my love of the theme song is like maybe a metaphor for the best way to enjoy Enterprise, which is you just have to get on its level, you have to turn off your brain, you have to take it for what it is, and then you can sort of like find a way to enjoy it, which I actually have have come to do with Enterprise. Like, I will not defend it in any way, but I can certainly sort of enjoy it on some level, and I think it's that same level in which I like enjoy the theme song which is that it's bad and yet somehow (laughs) I find it like pleasing and relaxing yeah okay so I'm just gonna just tear in I guess so (laughs) not only so I I watched uh Enterprise um and because I watched all all the Trek series starting with um TNG uh in the 90s and then through you know through you know what was it that would have been like um, late elementary early middle school um, all the way up through high school, and I was in high school for the beginning of Enterprise, and uh, I would watch it with my dad, and um, it, and it just, I remembered it not being very good, and after a while, even you know, like this was kind of a thing we'd watch together. Even my my more Trek dad and myself were had, had to go like, no, I guess I guess we're breaking up with a Star Trek show, huh? Okay. Um, I heard good things about their 9-11 parallel arc that they did, you know, starting with the end of season two and in season three. But and I think I caught a few of those episodes and was more impressed with those. But I had gotten away from it to the point where I didn't check back in. And then um, uh, as I started in college, I did not keep up with it as I when I moved to down to U of I. And I was much more interested, for example, in the in Angel, which was having fabulous television every week at that time um so revisiting it i kind of was going in expecting yeah this is is not very good and there's a lot of really unfortunate um gender politics uh like racial undertones and there's a lot of problems with it but you know like it's probably gonna be better than i remember and it was actually worse than I remember. And I feel like not just as a Star Trek show, but as a show. Like, I forgot that they had the let's get everybody as naked as UPN will let us and have them rub gel on each other. <laughs> they the love first, that. 
oh, episode. Man. I just like assumed that that was a thing that came came on later as they were really trying trying for ratings. But no, they're like, let's get Jolene Blaylock as naked as we're going to be able to get her and have her rub up all, you know, have, uh, is it Archer? Is it Trip? I think it's Trip, right? It's in the it's pilot. They do it so many times, I feel like. Yeah. It could be it was any all of them. of them except, it was probably all of them at some point with the exception of Phlox, probably. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, well, it's bad writing in, in it. And it's, I really, really like uh, Bacula, Scott Bacula. I think he's terrific. I think he's underappreciated um, by a lot of TV fans uh, now for his work on Quantum Leap, which I actually think I think Quantum Leap is an underappreciated show among younger, like millennials and younger. Um, I, he's amazing on Men of a Certain Age. He was so good on looking. He's terrific. And pretty much everything else I've seen him in, I think he's just bad in this and, and and what does it take for it takes a lot for me to think that he's bad because I start like when we just like the entry point I go into a project with Baculin is like really positive, um, and then there's the frankly very interchangeable white dudes at the core of the entire show, uh, and then there's the Hoshi is given you know the first storyline she's given is imposter syndrome and I can't handle it out here. Um, it would have been nice if they'd given that to I don't know Trip or something or or or, or you know uh, Reed right Malcolm Reed yeah but no they give that's the first storyline they give her and like th- then there's May- Mayweather I mean Carolyn you'll remember at the Star Trek celebration at DePaul last year I, I did the um, the Star Trek fantasy draft which you were kind enough to participate in and the the Enterprise people were the ones who were left last <laughs> for pilot, for engineer. For like, nobody wanted the Enterprise crew. And it's because they weren't characters for the most part. <laughs> and, and when they were characters, it was really, um, if you were going to take any sort of a, a thoughtful or critical approach to the characters, there was a lot of really unfortunate to troubling subtext. I mean, I feel like to Paul spends most of the series just being yelled at for being different and being not just the characters, but the show saying you're wrong for not being human. Like when she doesn't want to try human food, they're like, the flocks is so mean. It's like, well, you know, you really should expand. She's like, I tried it. I don't like it. And she's supposed to be wrong. Like I just, there's so much I don't like. I'm just kind of rambling now. I think I should throw it back to you guys. (laughs) Like, I, I, I think it's a poorly made show. I think a lot of it, especially in the first couple seasons, is not well written or conceived or structured. They have all the wrong priorities. They don't know what makes Trek good. So am I just being too harsh? No, I don't think you're being too harsh. I think I think at its heart, there's something very regressive about Enterprise, which I, I mean, I and I have this concern about Star Trek Discovery as well coming up, but I am not sure Star Trek works well in a prequel setting. I think the series is so much about sort of looking forward and forward momentum that to go back in time is just it's sort of jarring. And so you're in this weird situation where, you know, this show is is theoretically predating the original series, but obviously looks so much more modern than the original series. And um, I think one of the most frustrating things for me is that, like, when you look at the casting breakdown of the show, it's very similar to the original series. Like you said, Kate, it's like a lot of white men. The captain is a very traditional, sort of vaguely Kirkish, but less charming white man. 
Um, and, and that is a very regressive way to think about history. Like, I feel like the creators were sort of like, oh, of course, the first the first ever starship captain would be, you know, this very um, slightly rugged white man. When really, you like, how cool would it have been to be like, oh, the first ever um, captain of a Starfleet ship was a black woman or, you know, like you could have you could have because this is theoretically in our um future but because it's predating the original series there's this weird tendency to sort of go backwards and make it more regressive and i think that that's really frustrating it's really frustrating to watch the show do that i definitely agree that the characters are very underdeveloped um really the only ones that they cared about are archer to paul and trip every once in a while dr flocks and i actually really like hoshi as a character and i think she occasionally gets some interesting things to do but it's just so clear that they didn't have the love for this ensemble that i think other trek series had that really make those characters so memorable even in the show even something like voyager that i know like has a very mixed reputation i think that that show um succeeds like certainly on a character level far more than enterprise ever did yeah, I'd agree with pretty much everything you guys are saying. E- keeping in mind, like, I did a very broad spectrum sampling based on Caroline's recommendations, plus, like, half of season one, which I immediately regretted. Um, <laughs> not the not the sampling list that Caroline provided, but the doing half of season one, I immediately regretted. Um, no, 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 I, I very much agree to everyone's point. Like, while I was watching that first half of season one, I kept kind of confusing Tripp and Malcolm even though they sound completely different, I just kept going, this is, th-. there was actually one point where I just went, that's the same guy, right? And he's just like, nope, no, he it's just, not. He just like switches his wig out. Right, that's what I thought was happening. Um, but I think Caroline's point about the show, like the, the franchise itself going backwards, ending up feeling regressive is really spot on. And I'm thinking back to like one of the episodes um, that I think Caroline recommended, um, where you get a flashback to Archer discussing how he rose through the ranks to become the first captain, and his competitor is another white guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, and I was thinking about that while Caroline was talking about it. I was just like, there was no one else in contention, apparently, except these two white dudes. And I have to go, well, an entire international community went, meh, those two guys got it. And have we gone past needing money at this point in the Star Trek universe? I don't know, because I I don't have an answer to that question. But I'm just like, I don't, I feel like there would have been more political wrangling to have more representation just on a political level, not even thinking about it as like a television show representation issue. Right, especially because representation is so key to Star Trek's ethos. Like, I sometimes I make these points about, like, I think all shows could stand to be more diverse, but it is so crucial to Star Trek, and it's so frustrating to see a show that was made in 2001 essentially have the same casting breakdown of a show that was made in 1965. Like, it should be more progressive, but I think they really, they really like thought of this prequel thing as like a get out of jail free card and on my most recent rewatch like pretty much anyone in this universe who has invented something impressive is a white man with the one exception of the guy who invented the um the transporter is a black man which is like props to them for that one thing but pretty much everyone else they deal with like every high-ranking person at starfleet most of the high-ranking people in other cultures like they always just revert to the white man which is such lazy storytelling for star trek well, and it's actually less diverse than the original Trek, as I would argue, because, yes, there's a very similar number of white dudes. But remember, in the original Star Trek, there's the two Americans, there's the Scott, 
there's the uh, the Russian. These yeah. are like everybody on this ship except for Malcolm is American, right? Or they just don't have accents, mm-hmm. but they will have accents in yes. the future when it becomes original series. Like, <laughs> how does the rest of the world not go, hey, hey, we exist too, and we would like a person on the first ever ship that's going to represent the entire planet. It just doesn't even make sense if you think about it for two seconds. Well, so much of Enterprise just kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, Caroline mentioned the prequel Get Out of Jail Free card, but the show is so bad at its internal continuity within the franchise that it's not even funny. Like, the Borg episode? Just, (laughs) I don't understand how that works. Because there's just, like, this whole thing where they fight the Borg on the first Enterprise, and everyone's just, like, in Next Generation, what the f*** are these things? And it's just like, (laughs) no! They had a whole encounter on the first starship with these guys! How do you not know? (laughs) It's an Armin Timzarian situation. We're just never gonna mention this again. Um, Well, and you don't... I, I get why it was an attractive idea to have a temporal Cold War, but that's it was a stupid idea. What happened what happened in that? Someone tell me because I don't know. <laughs> I didn't finish watching to find it out. If you're fighting a race of time travelers, you're going to lose. <laughs> Especially if you're at the technology point that humans are at, let alone like the entire federation. They've never seen anything like this before. The time travelers will win unless you give a reason why they aren't going to win. Um that is any good. And they don't, at least not to me, not in a satisfying way here. So, wanting to do something new and different and cool, um Okay, wanting to play with time, it's a staple of of the series, but making that your, like, series-long baddie, that's just a bad idea. Yeah, I'm big on trying to engage with shows on their levels, right? Like, I like Voyager a lot more than most people because I think I sort of immediately understood, like, this does not want to be this edgy Lost in Space show. It wants to be a very traditional Trek show. So I tried to do that with Enterprise, like give it the benefit of the doubt. It wants to be this prequel. Like I want to engage with it on its level, but it feels like it just then has this identity crisis and it doesn't know what it wants to be because instead of sort of exploring like, wow, look at all the limitations of what these first travelers would be like, like Noel was saying, like then we just get the Borg and we get, um, you know, all these repetitions of things that we've seen before. And I actually think the strongest episodes are the ones that do really engage with the with the prequel concept. Like, there is maybe a good way to do that as, as against that as I am conceptually. Um, I do like, like, when we go to see Travis Mayweather's family and he, he works on these um, ships and he's only really lived his life in space and we sort of get to see that culture of these transportation ships that have been out there far longer than Starfleet has. And when we get to learn about um, the first colony of humans that had sort of disappeared long ago and we get to solve that mystery, like, when you're introducing those new concepts or one of my favorite episodes, the catwalk where there's this, um, this big space storm coming through, that's going to give all the crew radiation poisoning and they don't have the warp speed to outrun it yet. So they have to essentially like hide themselves um, behind this protective stuff in the catwalks. And that's such a cool concept, but instead of doing that, the show would just sort of revert back to like, okay, well we need to do the Borg episode. We need to have these big, bad, you know, time travel, temporal time issues going on and if you had just really engaged in its own premise i think it would have been a much stronger series or even engaging um like they do and again it, i didn't watch a lot of this arc i didn't rewatch a lot of this um to prepare but i like the idea and and the bits i saw of it of of tracing the development of vulcan high command 
and and undermining some of our expectations like because one of the first things if you're a trek fan you think vulcans you think of the mind melds and but they introduce us to a trek you know to a vulcan high command that is completely you know completely unrelated like that's been suppressed and they connect that with sexuality you can argue about the execution of you know having uh to paul get mind raped and then get mind meld aids and then find out that it's like there's some of the parallels it's kind of nice that they're wanting to engage on this stuff the execution isn't always you know great but but at least that's an interesting thing to do with a prequel to say here's your expectations you know where the vulcan high command and where, where the relations between vulcan and and earth are going to get here's where it was before and now let's watch how that transitions but most i feel like they really didn't catch on to that as like what a big part of the core of the show could be all the potential that that gives the, could have given the show yeah I, I i again i agree in the fact that i feel like the vulcans end up being really bad one note in that they're just seeming like kind of like very bureaucratic type gatekeepers in a lot of ways because it's always about oh the vulcans are keeping us back guys why are they doing this to us we're so <laughs> awesome <laughs> And they just won't let us do anything. And th- that is basically everyone's response to any Vulcan that they meet, except for the ones that are like tapped into their emotions. And I just kept waiting for that relationship to deepen in some significant way. And it never did in a way that I felt like was satisfactory that pointed to the fact where humans and Vulcans like figured one another out in a way that allowed them to really form this like long lasting relationship between themselves as a species. And it just never came to fruition, at least again in the sampling I did. But even like by the end of the show where I was watching it, they were just like, oh, Vulcans, man. Yeah, I know. And I just, I was really surprised that, that they just couldn't find a way to make that relationship s- deeper and less just stably antagonistic. Yeah, I guess it's worth pointing out at this point that, like, the general, like, sort of conception of Enterprise is that the first two seasons are garbage, which I mostly agree with. Like, I think even Enterprise fans mm-hmm. will admit that those are not good. Um, they tried to do the the temporal Cold War sort of overarching plot but mostly it's just super episodic and then season three which as kate mentioned is the sort of like 9-11 parallel terrorist attack season um people are like okay it's getting better here they're starting to be more serialized and then season four is when they bring in a new showrunner manny koto and they start doing these sort of short arcs where it's like two to three sometimes even four episodes sort of make up a little arc they wrap that up they go on to a new one and so the conventional wisdom is like season four is the best season because manny koto is more of a fan and, like, I agree with you, know that the Vulcans are really one note for most of the series. The only time that vaguely starts to change is in season four. They kind of try to a little bit retcon and, like, give the Vulcans some more depth. Um, I like season four. I actually think season three doesn't quite get enough credit. Um, it starts out kind of rocky. I think by the end of season three, to me, that's actually the most compelling the show gets. Um, you have the Zindi war arc. I think it's it's pretty solid. Then the shorter arcs in season four sort of, I don't know, they don't always quite gel as much as I want them to, but um, I just thought it was worth that to, to explore the big picture a little bit, but I totally agree with your point, Noel, that these Vulcans are, are so one-note, um, even though, like Kate said, I do agree that like the idea of challenging our preconceived notions about what the human-Vulcan relationship is like is really interesting, as with many things in Enterprise, the execution <laughs> just winds up being really lacking. 
No, and that point about um, like the show structure, like I didn't watch a lot of season three because I was following your guides, and you didn't have a lot of like individual episodes from season three. Yeah, it's three really hard there. to watch in isolation because right. it's, it's pretty heavily serialized. So I ended up watching like a good bit of season four as a result because I was actually really interested in watching them play out this kind of mini arc type of format, which is something I've always kind of advocated for with a lot of other shows right now um, that could benefit from that kind of approach as opposed to a season long, season long idea, uh, mainly all the CW superhero shows. And so I was actually, I really enjoyed those that I watched because the story felt in those instances, particularly driven the need for a lot of action, which I think is what UPN was really interested in having as well, uh, really kind of came through in these in these particular episodes without having to worry about anything. So, like, the Augments episode where they have um, Soong's grandfather, or great-grandfather, grandfather. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, one of those two. One of those two. Um <laughs> come in he's played by brent spiner who's having a ball just chewing on all the scenery around him and it's 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 good it's it's a lot of fun it's kind of pulpy in a lot of ways um kind of terrible in sexual politics but that feels very akin to the rest of this show yeah um but it's it's good it feels like kind of a sci-fi adventure series it doesn't necessarily feel like my conception of star trek necessarily in a lot of ways but it's it's fun, and that's something I couldn't really ascribe to a lot of the other episodes I watched. And I do think it's worth pointing out um, that, you know, and again, I like <laughs> to be the Enterprise Defender because um, no. <laughs> that's not always how I feel. But, it, you know, this is the show that only got four seasons, and the the other sort of non-original series all got seven. So I do wonder, because the show does feel like it's finding its feet towards the end of season three and in season four, like, I wonder if this show had had seven seasons, if we would have thought about it more kindly. Because when you think about Next Generation, like, that starts out with two relatively bad seasons, but because it goes on to such heights, we're, we're more forgiving. Whereas when the two bad seasons are half of its run, I do think that that's unfortunate. On the other hand, Enterprise came after Next Generation, so, it, you know, it should have known better to some extent. Um, it's certainly frustrating to watch it start off on such a on such a weak foot right out of the gate. Um, but yeah, I do sort of wonder maybe if it had been given more time, it would have, it would have found itself a little bit more. And that's again, let's not sugarcoat it. Those first two seasons of TNG are bad. They are yeah, not, real bad. Like there's some good ideas that come through there and there's some fun in there, but they are, they do not live up to rewatch like some would hope. Um, that's a trend, actually, in, in, in some track, too. A little wobbly start, and then it improves, and mm-hmm. then, you know. Uh, I, I think DS9 doesn't really have that in the same way, personally. But I know, for some people, that's the same even with DS9. But, um, yeah. And, and I, before we run out of time here, I do want to say a few kind things. I like, And, again, it's t- for me, it tends back towards the ideas more than the execution. So while I, uh, I find it frustrating that their response to having a Vulcan is to just like shame her for being a Vulcan and then make her get addicted to emotions um, and try to be more and more human. At least they were giving her some, the actress something to do. At least that's something to explore. And I actually really like, I would have liked to have seen what a, a show less hampered by the need to, to have that struggle with that character, how they would show a relationship with T'Pol and Trip that was more respectful of, 
what being a Vulcan is. Um, I think that could have actually been really terrific. And, and there, are, there are like glimpses of that that I think are really great. Like in the, in the, um, the, the second to last episode, we got to talk about the finale before I forget, but um, the second to last episode when we have, and this idea of Elizabeth and the first <laughs> half human, half Vulcan baby, um, I actually think that's a really, really great idea to explore and how, how parts of humanity are going to react to that. Um, there's plenty of uh, current political things you can read into those last few episodes if you want. Anyways, moving on from that. Uh, another thing I will <laughs> praise is uh, I actually, I think this show maintains the trend of entertaining doctors. I think, uh, I mean, John Billingsley is a terrific character actor. He's entertaining in pretty much everything he's in. But I think I think Dr. Flox is uh, probably probably my favorite character on this on the show and uh i actually ended up having a lot of fun with him the first time through and also on rewatch so yeah he's great love to flocks and billingsley john, john billingsley anybody else have any we're gonna talk about the finale but anybody else have any other things they want to touch on before we go there yeah i want to i want to highlight someone who i think never gets enough credit and i don't know if i'm crazy because i never hear other people saying this i think connor trainer as trip is one of the better not the best, but one of the higher level actors in any Star Trek series. I think because the character doesn't feel very mold breaking and he's just sort of like pleasant and charming, like it's easy to just sort of him write him off as boring. But I actually think that the show puts a lot of story weight on Trip. He carries a lot of episodes. A lot of the best episodes involve him. And I think Connor Trenier is giving a really great nuanced performance within this sort of mask of like the charming Southern gentleman. Um, so I think he's he's a highlight for me, like really among all of the Trek series. And I agree with you, Kate, that the I think that the Charles to Paul or the trip to Paul relationship is like it's not explored enough, but I think it is one of the more compelling romances on Star Trek. Admittedly, a very, very low bar. There are not very good romances on Trek, but <laughs> I think that this is one of the more interesting ones. And again, I wish that they had had more time to explore it because I think I think I'm not a huge fan of uh, Jolene. Have you seen her last name? Blaylock. Blaylock. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of her, um, but I think Connor Trainer is really great. He's really great in that relationship, and I would have loved to see more of that. And it's it's nice to see the emotional guy. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, because that's not something that is certainly embraced in in Trek as a whole, but it, just in our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Um, one thing we should mention, in part because someone requested that we uh, mention it uh, quickly, um, was the two-part Mirror Universe episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone who is really only passingly familiar with TOS, um, I went back and watched the Mirror, Mirror Universe episode uh, before I watched the uh, Enterprise one. Uh, so I had like a frame of a better a fresh frame of reference for it and it was fine is my general response um bacula like we were talking about just can't decide what he's doing with any form of archer <laughs> um whether he's terran or not but at the same time hoshi maybe apparently ends up as emperor of the terran empire we don't know <laughs> but um it was it was perfectly fine um i didn't have anything like really wrong with it but i'm also not like particularly connected to that particular part of star trek um how did that play for either of you in particular i always see those episodes a two-parter i always see them highlighted as like the best that enterprise ever did i think they're vastly overrated it's fine 
Um, we don't know these characters enough that it's like shocking right. to see them in a different form. That's because that's like the show's fault for making them so bland. I do think um, like Connor Trainer Linda Park, who, pay, who plays Hoshi, is is I think a really solid actress, not given very much to do. I think that that maybe is her best episode. Um, but yeah, I think that those are actually pretty overrated. They're sort of fun. They they try to like dig into story in a way that's far too serious. Um, so yeah, I'm always shocked when I see people list those as as a top episode, which happens a lot actually. I guess just because the show is so bland, like any sort of flavor <laughs> in there is appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they they aren't on my personal top list. Kate, what about you? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm harsher on them than you guys are because for me, the other Mirror Universe episodes and the other shows are really very strong. So the original series uh, Mirror Universe episode is actually one of the best episodes of that season. And it shows the the, the actors have fun, but it also shows how well they know. Each, like they figure out that there's that obviously these are doppelgangers like instantly in the, in the original Trek. And, and so the actors get to have fun. Uh, the characters work together and like there's no um, twist for the sake of twists beyond the, just the premise. Um, and so I actually think that's a really solid episode of TOS. Uh, and if you're going to do the um, like, like, like I, I think this episode, these episodes try to have some fun in the vein of mirror universe Kira, like sex pot mirror universe Kira. And you're just not going to top that. I don't like they have so much fun with that um, on DS9 that when they try to do it similar thing, it feels more like an imitation. So I think, yeah, it's it's fine. It's not a stand. Those are not standard episodes of Enterprise for me, but at least they're doing something like like you said, Caroline. But for me, they also pale in comparison, not just to some of the best of Enterprise, but to the other Mirror Universe episodes. But I, I have a feeling that our, for our listener who requested that, they really like those. So mm-hmm. sorry we didn't like yeah. it as much as you did. But yeah, that's sort of where I'm at with it. That's fair. Um, yeah, so Before finale. we run out of time here, it was all a holodeck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most misguided series finales. Like, I would say easily tops the the hated How I Met Your Mother finale. Like, it, it's so misguided in what it's trying to do i think that they've gone on record and saying that they were trying to do this like send-off for star trek the star trek franchise as a whole so they have this whole next generation plot tied into it but they also jump into the future of enterprise it's just misguided on every level they do some things that they make some story choices that i strongly disagree with um and it's just like a bummer of an episode to end on like really really grim like not what you want even as a person who like can see some of the good sides of enterprise like man that is there is nothing good to say about that episode they give the last the last frames of the show as uh, i mean i didn't rewatch it for this i do remember it vividly but i I could be transposing this so remind so correct me if i'm wrong here guys but as i recall they give the last scenes of the show to Riker and troy expositioning what happened to the crew after the end of the series like mm-hmm. who again who thought that was a good idea that was an, obviously a terrible terrible idea it just again it speaks to not understanding the show or not respecting these characters and what a finale should be and like if, if you feel like you have to bring in characters from T, uh from tng to get anybody to be excited about or care about your finale you screwed up yeah, totally agree. <laughs> um, I don't have as strong a reaction to it since I just watched it um, like 
in, in within the frame of this. Um, mostly, I agree with though that the decision to exp- exposition away everyone's fates was just kind of bizarre. And like you said, it demonstrates that no one kind of really cared, seemed to care anyway, about the characters that they had just spent four seasons and building up or like dealing with in some way. And so, yeah, it was just, it was a very weird episode to watch as someone who didn't have a whole lot of context for the show and was watching just a sampling and but still watching it i just went this seemed like a really bad idea on like a new viewer sort of level i can't even imagine like how people who sat through the show for an extended period of time across four years went that's all we got was that but 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 two shows ago we had it end with a trial for humanity in Picard. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so I feel like that would be where I, I would assume a lot of folks came from. Certainly I was just like, this is just kind of lazy. Yeah. Well, and again, the second to last episode, I, I feel like what have functioned just fine as a series finale. You get like the, you know, they're going to blow up the, the, the peace talks or, you know, and, and Archer gives this bit, you know, they save the day art, uh, you know, they have the baby stuff with trip into Paul. So like, there's plenty of emotional stuff going on there. Uh, everybody gets to, you know, like Hoshi gets the really dramatic stuff to do as well as if she's going to fire. And, and then it all ends with a big rousing speech from Archer, you know, like how is it? Well, it ends with trip into Paul, but like, you know, and the, the fact that, uh, uh, half human half Vulcan child could actually exist talking about like the future of their their races and everything or species but like how is that not your last episode I feel like you just the last episode for me just doesn't exist and that's a decent you know not all time great or anything but it's a strong good strong enough finale well I feel kind of bad because usually when we do DVD shelves, there's at least one person <laughs> in the conversation who really likes the show we're talking about. So um, if there are any Enterprise fans who, well, I'm assuming they stopped listening by this point. <laughs> um, sorry if we were too mean to your show. And I get that we all have shows that we love that other people don't. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I am glad, Noel, that we have now covered all of Star Trek on the DVD shelf. Uh, I can go into discovery you know with you know a sense of completionism to uh, the televerse's coverage of trek um but yeah yeah this was i I think this is might maybe the harshest we've been on a show on the dvd shelf so enterprise fans out there sorry (laughs) sorry um uh caroline thank you so much for for coming on and and talking trek with us we should mention of course uh that you've got fabulous uh trek coverage over at the av club that people can go um check out is there any particular articles you would point them to yeah um well i wrote one it's similar um and slightly different guides one for av club and one for vox which are sort of like um, guides to getting into the whole Star Trek franchise um, just in entirety. So if you want to check out either of those, I do have some specific recommendations for Enterprise. Um, I will say, as harsh as we were on this, to me, like, Enterprise is perfectly watchable. Like, I I watched all four seasons. I was happy to do them. They're not great, but it's not, it's not like, offensive to me as much as it might sound like that. So if you want to check out those articles, I do have like genuine enterprise recommendations. I think some episodes are certainly as good as sort of like the middling to solid episodes of next gen or Voyager or something. So 
Um, yeah, there's, I don't have hatred for enterprise. I sort of have indifference to enterprise. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, again, thank you, Caroline, for coming on. Where can our listeners find you and your non-Trek related work online? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Sita. That's probably the easiest place. If you are an enterprise defender, please let me know. Cause I, I am always loving, I love the enterprise defenders out there. Yes, and please do also. I won't speak for Noel, but please do let me know too, listeners. I can take it. If you're if you love the theme song, <laughs> reach out. I want to hear hear about it. I want to know why. We should say friend of the show, Alistair Wilkins, uh, does not like the theme song, but really appreciates the visual component that goes with it. So you know. Let me know if that's if, how you feel about all that, too, um, at the Televerse, of course, on Twitter. Um, thank you, Westmore Caroline, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.